Make sure that you're pursuing something that's authentically important to you and not just a whim that you think is important because you're comparing yourself to some of you envy. Welcome back to the Wild Goose Chase and joining me on today's show is a very special guest, Dr. John Demartini. I am so excited to be able to have this conversation. Dr. Demartini is a world-leading human behavior specialist. He is a researcher, a global educator, and author. He's authored 40 books that have been translated into 39 languages. He's presented alongside Richard Branson, Deepak Chopra, you name it, he's done it. And and in our conversation today, we tackle things like manifestation, but not on some kind of like, you know, woo-woo level, some real practical, actual, how can you use the concepts behind the law of attraction and manifestation to fundamentally live a life by design, which is one of the core principles behind the wild goose chase. I believe everyone should be living a life by design and that that has real meaning in this conversation. But we went beyond that. We actually talked about success, fulfillment, value determination. We also talked about investment, business, and how to maximize your impact on the world through specific processes to delegate all, get rid of all of the stuff that you shouldn't be doing so you can focus on the highest value stuff. So if you want to have more impact, if you want to live a better life, and if you want to really achieve your highest potential, then I think this is absolutely going to be something you are going to love. So before we get into it, make sure you subscribe, leave a comment below, let me know you like this, give me a thumbs up wherever you are, and I can't wait to share this with you. So let's get stuck into it, and I'll see you on the inside. Welcome back to the Wild Goose Chase, Dr. Demartini. It is truly an honor and a pleasure and a privilege to be spending some time with you today. I'm, I'm super grateful for this experience. Welcome to the Wild Goose Chase. How are you? I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. I was looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too. Now, everyone will have kind of caught the intro, so I'm very interested to dig into a lot of stuff today. I know that you're a polymath. You've studied over 299 academic disciplines through the last five years, so you're a wealth of knowledge. You've got a lot of wisdom to share, and I know that your mission is to, your mission and vision is to share knowledge and wisdom that empowers you to become the master of, of your own life and destiny, and I want to get into all of that. But firstly, the very first question I want to ask you what is it like living on a boat sailing around the world? Talk to me about that. When 9-11 occurred, uh, right afterwards, a month afterwards, we were living in New York, in Trump Tower, actually. We lived right underneath the Donald, crazy Donald. <laughs> and when that occurred, my wife didn't want to be in New York. And we had another home in Australia. So she got her way over to Australia and said, I'm sticking around here. And I said, well, I'm only scheduled to go to Australia four times a year. I'm not going to see you. We got to come up with plan B. And I knew about the ship, the world, which is a private yacht that sails around the world. And it was about to launch that year. And so I, as an anniversary present, I got her a condominium on that ship because I thought that we would be more likely to rendezvous and meet up on the ship than we would just in one location because it's moving around. So that was 21 years ago. And I've been living off and on. And I say off and on because sometimes I'm traveling by jet mm. to do talks. But since COVID, I've been on here full time. And so I just sail around the world and do my podcast, webinars, and my research, and my meetings from here. And I'm in the Seychelles Islands right now. And so it's I don't I, I really don't know of a better address on Earth. It's a it's a private condominium based luxury six star floating resort. It's not a cruise ship. It's private. And it, it's very, very nice. That's spectacular. I believe that it is still, I think it is still the only fully private residential cruising yacht in the world. It's super fascinating. How do you think that, how do you think the ability to continually change your environment, how do you think that that's continued to inform your worldview over the last 20 or so years that you said you were there? Well, not only from flying, but also from sailing, I've been able to speak in now 189 countries mm. and uh, swipe into a lot of countries. 
Anywhere where there's water, I, I, we go from the Antarctic to you name it, to the Arctic. And uh, I get the opportunity to see people from all different walks of life with all different value systems and all different needs and all different scales of economics. And I don't know of a better education. I think that you really get to appreciate the world and get to be blessed and feel grateful that some of the things you get to do in life, because some people are less fortunate. And it, it, it opens your heart to want to be philanthropic, I think, by getting to see the world. And I think that it's just a, a blessing of that I've allowed myself to have, I think, in, in this world because, you know, I used to be able, I, I've worked very diligently for many years, 50 years I've been teaching, over 50 now. And I always saved a portion of whatever I earned and, and invested it in assets so it would eventually allow me to do what I love, not because I had to, but because I love to. And I think that that's what every human being can do because I didn't start out, you know, with a silver spoon. I, I was a street kid. And I lived in a, on the streets and lived in a, under a park bench. I mean, I lived in, I had, my starts were not as, you know, luxurious, but I've, I've been a traveler most of my life, but I, I'm very blessed to be able to have the opportunity to do that. But I, when I was 18 years old, I, I asked my mom, what exactly is a genius mom? She said, well, people like Albert Einstein and Da Vinci. I said, well, then get me something where I can read about these guys. And Albert Einstein said, I'm not a man of my family. I'm not a man of my community. I'm not a man of my city or in my state or even my nation. I'm a citizen of the world. And so at age 18, I wrote that down. I love that. I want to be that way. Epictetus did that. Socrates, they all said that. Citizen of the world. And so I said that the universe is my playground. The world is my home. Every country's a room in the house and every city is a platform I, to share my heart and soul. And I start saying that at about age 20. And I've never missed a day. And now I literally as a citizen of the world. <laughs> so I, I can't complain. I, I do believe that what we think for ourselves, see for ourselves, say to ourselves and take actions towards can become our reality. So I'm, a, I'm very grateful that I, I guess, had the experience or the foresight or whatever it is to design my life and work towards something than to just be at the whims of what goes on around me and telling me what to do. Living by design is wiser than living by duty. I couldn't agree with you more. One of the core principles of this show is to encourage people to live a life by design. And when, when a lot of people hear the term live a life by design, they sometimes think like four-hour work week, you know, I'm just going to like work four hours a week and sit on a beach in the Bahamas or whatever. And, and maybe that is appropriate for some people and that is, that is wonderful and great. But the, the true meaning of living a life by design is – architecting the absolute best version of your your potentiality and your future and everything that you can you can imagine i'm a big believer in that i've been able to successfully do that in my own life and you know life is a journey and we're all still on it i would like to dig into that a little bit more and particularly pull on that thread now i know it was a little while ago now but you were you were in the movie the secret and i'll tell a small little anecdote about that uh about that film i was actually working in a cafe in melbourne uh, where, where the production team for The Secret were working. And they used to come into my cafe and order coffee. And you know, I was just a friendly guy and I was chatting to them. And they said, oh, we're working on this movie. And I said, oh, great, what is it? They said, it's The Secret. And I said, fantastic. And they, they gave me a copy of it. And I was probably 18 at the time. And they gave me a copy of it. This is before it was released. And so I had this thing and I was watching it and I was like, oh, this is all pretty good. And then it snowballed and obviously went on to become a, a major success. Now, in the in the movie the secret the kind of the secret is really about the law of attraction and manifestation and how you can literally inform your world 
through the actions, thoughts, words, all of these in all of these inputs that you can bring into life to actually create a life by design. A lot of people hear manifestation or things like that and they kind of think it's a little woo-woo. But I'd like I'd like to kind of dig into that a little bit because from a kind of a more scientific angle, I'd love you to love to get your perspective on how that actually works and how people can apply these this principle in their own life. Well, I have what I call a manifestation formula that I've been using since I was 17 that I compiled after meeting Paul Bragg, who inspired me to do what I'm doing. So it's been with me for over 50 years. That's why I was asked to be in the movie because I, they had seen that I was lecturing about that topic. And there's no doubt there's scientific behind it. So let's go down the rabbit hole a bit here. In our brain, we have layers in the brain, best way of describing it. And we have the forebrain, which is for foresight. And we also have the hindbrain, which is for hindsight. And we also have things that are very valuable to us that we intrinsically are called to act on and things that are less important to us that we need motivation to get us to act on. If you identify what's really important to you and you start pursuing and taking actions to fulfill it, the medial prefrontal cortex in the forebrain gets blood glucose and oxygen. That area of the brain automatically sends signals into the visual cortex where it activates the V5, V6 associative areas and it allows you to see content for a vision. You know, the old saying, those with a vision flourish, those without a vision perish. So when you're pursuing something that's truly deeply meaningful and inspiring to you, you literally neurologically get access to visual information you don't have access to when you're not. And this is what activates visual imagery. You can see it. You can see solutions. Your innermost dominant thought will always be an expression of what you value most. Because whatever you value most, it dominates your thought. And whatever you dominate your thought on, the way the brain is set up, it filters reality in the pulvinar nuclei of the thalamus. All sensory information that goes from the senses goes through the thalamus before it goes to the cortex. And the pulvinar nuclei is a filtering and gaining mechanism, and it literally screens out anything that's not helping you fulfill what that is and allows you to see synchronously those things that do. And so if you pursue what's really deeply important to you, not only will you see a vision, but you will also see opportunities that you can't see otherwise. But if you're not pursuing what's highest on your value, things low, the blood glucose noxion goes into the amygdala. The amygdala doesn't have the connections to the visual. You've lost your vision, and now you're in immediate gratification and impulses and instincts are survival. So if you want to really thrive and excel and become master of destiny, not victim of history, it's key is to prioritize what you do because then you'll automatically think about it You'll automatically see it. And when you have a clear vision, the message area of the brain and the temporal cortex automatically can articulate what you see fluently. A sign of a congruency with high value is fluency. Your fluency is proportional to congruency. And if you can articulate what you see in your mind and what you are thinking about and dominating your thought on that you feel is your real mission and purpose, you automatically awaken six feelings. Gratitude, because the executive center is a gratitude center. A feeling of love, because it's, it's something you would love to create. An inspiration, because you can see how you can do it and you feel inspired to go after it. An enthusiasm, because anytime you're doing something behind your values, your energy goes up and you're inspired and you're more self-governed, which is called poised or enthusiasm. Enthusiasm is not excitement. It's a poised state of energy. And then you're more certain because you're less wavering from the amygdala 
and you're more present because you're not distracted by the past and future. So you maximize your potential if you prioritize what you're doing. That's why if you fill your day with high priority actions that inspire you, it doesn't fill up with low priority distractions, it don't. Now, if you do that and you get inspired and you have those feelings, you tend to want to capture what you have in a vision and quickly capture it, write it down or type it out and you want to plan. And the executive center is designed for strategic planning and mitigating risks. So you start to say in space and time what you want to accomplish and you have this energy that you want to act spontaneously. You act on things that are highest on your value and your gratitude is up and your self-worth goes up anytime you're doing high values. So your self-worth is up, your gratitude is up, your clarity is up, you can fluently articulate it. People then understand what you're wanting to accomplish and want to participate in something that's inspiring to them. And so you draw people and magnetize people, places, events, and see synchronous events to help you get that. So the brain is literally helping you manifest what's authentic and what truly inspires you. But it's so important not to compare yourself to somebody else, put them on a pedestal, inject some of their values, confuse what's what's important to you, cloud yourself, get into the lower amygdala instead of the executive center, and then try to be second to being somebody else instead of first to being the authentic you. I love that. I want to just kind of explore a piece of that though, because a lot of everything you were saying there all make perfect sense, but it's kind of like what it feels like is the world is full of everything that you want, but if you can tune your system, so to speak, you will not only be able to more deftly ident- like see through the noise to get those specific things that you're after, but also you'll start to act as a bit of a magnet and you, like, like a magnet pulling, pulling iron filings toward you, you'll collect those bits and they'll become closer to you at the same time. So part of that seems like it's as much as anything about recognition of the things that are already there, which is different to, I guess, forming realities that only exist in, in, in perspective, right? Because there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a point of view that exists that reality is only ever our perception. So my reality only exists because I can specifically perceive it. And so if I can change the reality that I perceive, then in fact, the actual reality becomes changed because of that. And so if I can shift my perspective, I can shift actual reality as opposed to gathering things that already exist in reality that is actually shaping and transforming and, and literally designing a reality. And so how do you kind of measure how do you kind of mesh those two ideas together or do you have any thoughts on that? Yes. There are two different schools of thought. Well there's many schools of thought, but two of them that are kind of complementary opposites. One is uh, idealism where it's all a mind game. And whatever is out there is just a perception of the mind and it's just an illusion. And the other is there's a local realism where there's objects out there that are real that have nothing to do with your perception. And of course, these have been debated and debated and debated, even in quantum theory, because the measurement principle in quantum theory is you have a potential and then when you measure it, it becomes something real based on measurement. And so it's a question, is is it determined or is it indetermined? This is the, the debate. But I like to think, and I like to keep it practical, because if a mother is 35 years old and she's got three beautiful children under the age of five, and her highest value is raising those beautiful children, she's not a businesswoman, she's a mother dedicated to her children. If she walks in a mall, she's going to spot children's clothes, children's health items, children's entertainment items, children's education items, and she's going to spot them, she's going to see them, She's going to buy them and put a value on them and spend money for them and take them home. And her house is going to fill up with what she values for what she thinks is important for the kids. Now, she may have a husband 
with a different set of values. He may be entrepreneurial. And even though he has three kids, if you asked him, who are you? He'll say, well, I'm an entrepreneur. If you ask her who you are, who are you? She'd say, well, I'm a mother. Because her values, her whatever's highest on her value, her identity revolves around. And whatever's ever highest on his value, his identity revolves around. So he walks in the same all. He doesn't see children's items. He doesn't see all those things that she sees. He sees a, book, a, a bookstore and uh, uh, entrepreneurial books. He sees a suit store or an outfit store that's going to help him uh, advance his career. He sees what companies are busy in the mall that where to buy stocks. <laughs> he filters his reality according to his values. Our hierarchy of values dictates how we perceive, decide, and act. And so there's a there's a vast amount, an infinitude of, of what's out there in reality, but we're going to filter it out. That's what that pulmonary nucleus does. It filters and gates out the things that we feel will help us fulfill our values, and it lets everything else go. We have a selective biased attention for things that are important and an attention deficit for things that aren't. We've all met people and they said their name. I'm sure you've met somebody and they said their name. And then somebody came up to you a hundredth of a second afterwards and said, who is that? And you go, I don't know. They just said their name, but you didn't even register it, didn't let it in, and you forgot it within a billionth of a second because you didn't perceive they were going to really help you fulfill your values. But if somebody is really important and and you think this is this is going to help me get what I want, you'll write their name down, you'll make sure you repeat it, you'll make sure you gather that information. So we filter our reality according to what we value, and we are able to see opportunities that are always there, but we can't see them. We have what is called a selective biased attention and a selective biased disintention. One's attention deficit disorder, one's attention surplus order. Everyone has it. That's why if you're pursuing something that's matching your highest values, you maximize the synchronicities of things that are in the environment that are always there that you can see that match. And you are increasing what we call synchronicity. Wow, I was just thinking about there. There it is. But if you're trying to go and do something that's low in your values, you don't see the synchronicities because what you say you want is not what your real values are. And that's why it's important to know yourself, to know what's really important to you, and set goals that congruently align with that so you can wake up the authentic self. Because that's what allows the magic of the law of attraction. Because you are attracting that into your awareness by you having a true value on it. You spot it, it's there. But we also did an interesting study many years ago in the 80s. Back in the 80s, I learned something in my practice when I was in practice. I noticed that when I would read inactive patient files, about 20% of them would show up or call within a week. Just by people I haven't seen for six months or longer, I just start reading their names and thinking about their condition and think about what's what job they had and their family members and just reading their files. 20% of them would show back up in the office. We would reuse that to reactivate patients. And I took and did a thousand clinics in the 1980s. I was I did a lot of consulting to clinics and we did that exercise and consistently 20%. That was a very consistent number. Now, the question is, is how is that working? How is it you're thinking about it? I had a, a doctor in Chicago that I was consulting for, and I met with him on the night before he was going to be in his office. And I asked him a simple question. I, I want I want to um, have you list the names of all the patients you can think of, their full name, front, the first and last name. And I'm going to say go, and you're going to rattle off all the names you can think of 
And the second you have a pause for two seconds, we're going to stop. As long as you're rolling out the names, we'll, we'll keep going. But the second there's a pause, you go, uh, 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 we'll stop. And I was counting them as they was going. One, two, three, four, five. We got to 68. And I said, and he paused. I said, stop. He said, okay. He says, I can think of another one. I said, no, I just wanted to know when you had to pause. I said, how many days a week do you work? He says, four and a half. And I said, so what's four times 68? And he calculated it out. And now take half of that. And that's the time you're in, you're in the office the whole time working with client? Yep. I said, multiply that number. Is that how many people you're seeing on average per week? And he goes, my God, it is. I said, out of sight, out of mind. If your innermost dominant thought is not your clients, their innermost dominant thoughts are not your practice. So I said, your first exercise from this consult is I'm, go, go home tonight after we have our dinner and I want you to start memorizing a thousand names and reactivate and put them in your mind. We went into his office the next day and he started to do it and he memorized 40 additional names that night, just 40. Five of those 40 were in the practice and came in and reactivated or referred somebody the next day. Five out of 40. And so do you think that's to do with quantum entanglement then that, that kind of pulls those two things together? And then also there's a second part to that. Right, because there's one thing where it's okay. So through thoughts, actions, and intention, you can you can bring two objects or two realities together, or two kind of two energies together. But then the secondary part of that was that they were referring people and stuff. So then that also then has to relate to that individual's values and what they're projecting in the world. They want to grow their business or whatever the case may be. And so simultaneously, those two acts one. Speaking, thinking with intentionality to 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 reengage, reignite, um, reinvigorate those relationships, but in line with also the value tra- value trajectory of that individual to to grow their business and have more business. Is that is that a kind of a fair synopsis of that or a fair association? It's a combination. I can't say, I, I you know, theoretically, quantum entanglement is in the micro scale, even though it has a non locality to it. But I do believe that that's there, and they're finding more quantum entanglement phenomenon in larger systems. I mean, even Nobel Prize winners are working at that in the brain, for instance. But uh, we, so it could be that I don't want to say it is because I don't have absolute proof of that. Could be. But it could be. Mm-hmm. There's some, it could be correlations on that. But there's no question in my mind that if I could take any business, and I've done this for 40 something years now. 41 years I've been doing consulting, 50 speaking about it. I could take almost anybody and have them reactivate clients from their database and, and it will be within a week. They will see those people in a week because they're reading them. Now, you're now concentrating on that. It's your innermost thought. It's your focus. So you're going to be seeing opportunities you wouldn't see. But mysteriously, I, I think almost everybody, if you asked them, how many have thought of somebody and they called or they responded or somehow you ran into them or whatever and almost everybody will say yes and i'll say it's too frequent to ignore but it's not frequent enough to bet money on it's right in that gray zone so i don't know if i can say we've got the physics yet to explain it i i I have some theories i think quantum entanglement may be part of that but i have no proof of that i do know that i can clinically demonstrate that repetitively in you know a thousand doctor's office i think is a pretty good sample size and if we do think about people, we increase the probability. Now, 
It could be a resonation. You know, at one time, they, they didn't know about some of the pheromones that are sebaceous glands and all that secrete. And now we realize that if we're in an environment, even within 20 and 30 feet away or more, when we have a certain emotion, it can induce the same emotion as somebody else. So we then discovered, well, there's other senses that we weren't paying attention to. And so 10 years from now or 20 years from now, we may discover more senses that we don't know about because they're growing. And we may also discover more about the quantum world that allows us to understand why we think about people. They did a study where they took an electroencephalograph and somebody thought something. They took the electroencephalograph, they digitalized it, they stick it, they did it and downloaded the electroencephalograph of magnetic stimulation on another person's thing 5,000 miles away. And that individual got and said what the person was thinking. And they, they correlated that. And that's been done duplicated. So there may be some sort of electromagnetic field. It may be some sort of a quantum paramagnetic field. I don't think our science yet is complete to be able to explain, but we know it. We can't ignore it. And we, we could say, well, it's probabilistic. It's just happened to be. I don't think so. There's too frequent to ignore. And, and the doubters want to put it into, well, it's just a, a probability game. No, it's more than that. But at the same time, I don't want to make it and say, this is it. I think we're still in our infancy of understanding how these things work. Yeah, it's really interesting. I think it's far too easily impacted to be probabilistic, right? Because the more that someone can deliberately focus on this kind of area in their life, the more frequent they're going to see the outcomes of it. I mean, I personally know that for myself. I have a lot of intentionality. I, I very clear on my goals. And then it's quite funny because you'll set goals, you'll do your thing, you do the, you know, you focus and everything like that. But then what will happen is life will transpire and then things spontaneously happen. Then it's only when you go back and you're like, oh, that was the that thing that just happened. The place that I live, the journey that I've just been on, the whatever is a result of the actions that I took back at a certain point, which have manifested into the current reality. And so a question there. I had a, I had a okay, good. No, you go, you go. I, had a, I said I had a lady, a lady who is an up and coming pop star. You know, yep. she was a singer, performer. And it built a band and was growing. I was known around LA and some other countries and was picking mm -hmm. up the pace. And so she came to my breakthrough experience program, which is my signature program that I do to try to help people break through whatever their blocks are to get them to the next level. And she did this method that I developed called the Demartini method on Beyonce, one of her heroes in the music industry, who's the most Grammy award winning musician. Two and a half weeks after doing the exercise on her, where she spent eight hours of highly concentrated reflection and identifying everything she saw in Beyonce, where did she have it in her life? Where she was no longer putting Beyonce on a pedestal or in a pit, but just absolutely present and loving Beyonce by realizing everything she perceived in Beyonce, where did she have it in her own life? So she had ref pure reflective awareness. Two and a half weeks after that, Beyonce, out of the blue, she never met Beyonce in her life called her and asked her to perform in her house. What? I did, say, I did the exercise. I did the exercise on Stephen Hawking when I was writing a book on astrophysics. Because that's another topic that I love investigating. I did this, I did this very in-depth study of his life, found all the things that I admired and disliked, and went in, owned them all. And I call it owning the traits of the greats. And identifying where do I do it, when do I do it, who do I do it, who perceives me that way. What's the downside of what I admire? What's the upside of what I despise? And I level the playing field and just feel the presence and appreciation of this individual. Seven months later, I was asked to be in a movie with Stephen Hawking. 
Yeah. So that's, and, and it's now a book and a movie will be coming out. So I'm a firm believer that your innermost dominant thought becomes your outermost tangible reality. And when you're really, really present with something, you increase the odds of resonating with that individual or that opportunity. So how it works, I don't know if I can pin down. I give my theories, but I just know that there's something to it. And, and to ignore it, I think, is passing up a great skill and tool that gives people competitive advantages. Because most people I know that are super achievers, they'll know it. Yeah, they're, su- they're super interesting. I, I have a personal, um, I call it an affirmation that I've that I that I wrote myself. It is the universe gives you everything you want as fast as you want, and in the volume you desire. All you have to do is believe and be open to receiving. And that, like, you know, you've got to take action. You've got to do a few other things in there as well. But I find it to be a really kind of good guiding principle because there's bits in there that you're like, you have to genuinely believe it. You have to have that kind of emotional connection in order for that to actually become a reality. So talk to me then, how can people start to do this in their own life? You know, how can people start to enact on this? And why is it that, why is it that only some people seem to do this? And why are more people not successful? Is it because they're not associated? I know I'm winding in a couple of questions here, but, but bear with me. Because I, I'm wondering, is it, is it because people actually aren't aligned with their values or they don't understand their own personal values or they don't actually understand the words and the language and the thoughts they use every day and actually understand how that is shaping their reality? Because there are a lot of people who probably feel pain or feel stuck or don't feel like they're achieving what they want in life and probably think, oh, this just all sounds like rubbish. So I'd like to kind of tackle that a little and understand that and then maybe some guidance on how people can actually kind of start to use this information. Well, I've been doing value determinations for nearly 45 years. So I've probably been studying that as much as anybody. And the ones that are having the synchronicities and it seems like they're in the flow and it's making it happen are the people who are more congruent. It is that simple. I'm certain about there's no question left on that because I've been watching a lot of people for these years. So identifying what's truly most important, it's not just aligning with your values, it's aligning with the highest values because that's where you're spontaneously inspired. That's when you activate the executive center. That's where you have it. Anytime you're doing something that's high in your values, your self-worth goes up. Anytime you're doing something high in your values, your mind becomes more organized. Anytime you're doing something high in your values, because you're walking your talk and doing what you said and seeing opportunities, your belief in yourself goes up. So your belief, your confidence, your self-worth, your clarity all go up to the degree that you live by priority. But the second you compare yourself to somebody else and go, oh, I envy them. I want to be like them. And then you inject the values of others into your life and you got a whole lot of people who go, I wish I could be like that. You cloud the clarity of what's really important to you. You think it's important. You'd like it to be what's important, but it's not what your life demonstrates. Your life demonstrates what you value. When I developed a a value determination process, which I have company on my website, I'll go to drdmartini.com, they can go get it for free. If they go there and they go and ask the 13 questions about how they fill their space and how they spend their time, and really, what is it that energizes them? And where are they spending their money? And where are they most ordered and organized? And where are they most disciplined? And what are they thinking about visualizing and affirming in their life about how they want their life that is coming true? What do they keep wanting to converse in topics of conversation with people about those? What is it that inspires them and brings tears of gratitude to them? What is it they have that's a goal that's persistent, consistent, that's coming true? And what is it they spontaneously want to learn about? 
there will be a pattern if you look honestly. And if you identify what's really most important, the primo primary uh, value, and start focusing on filling your day with the highest priority access to fill that, I am absolutely sure and guarantee you, your life changes. The trajectory, the synchronicity goes up. The resonations go up. The magnetism goes up. The opportunities go up. The ideas and how to create what you want go up. All those things go up. That's the secret behind the secret left out of the secret. Make sure that you're pursuing something that's authentically important to you and not just a whim that you think is important because you're comparing yourself to some of you envy. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, envy is ignorance and imitation is suicide. I don't want to be second to being somebody else. I want to be first to being me. Yeah, comparison is the, th- is the thief of joy, right? And so, yeah, exactly. I, love, I love that. So, on a practical sense, do you, do you suggest any, you know, specific tactics that people use? I know people talk about, I know you've written a, uh, a gratitude journal for over 37 years. So do you think that like writing, writing this kind of stuff down, getting clear on it, or is it, is it because I think people can in- inter- hear this and intellectually internalize it and go, oh, got it. Okay. But then without a specific practice that they can apply habitually, ingrained in their life, the likelihood is that they're going to get lost again in their thoughts and their feelings and emotion and maybe maybe drift from that kind of core purpose. So do you have any ideas? And by the way, we'll put a link to the um to the value determination test on your website as well, which we'll chuck that in the show notes. But do you have any um any ideas on how people can actually start to galvanize this in a habitual sense into their life to kind of crystallize these thoughts? Yeah. So here's a there's two exercises. One I learned from Mary Kay who was the founder of Mary Kay Cosmetic Company. I had the opportunity to speak at the Anatole in Dallas, which is a big convention center for her group, for 4,500 women. I was the only man there, so I didn't know if I was alive and I died and I'd gone to heaven. You know, this, this was where I was speaking. After I spoke, I went to meet with Mary Kay, and I walked up to Mary Kay Ash, and I said, Mrs. Ash, what advice can you give a young 30-something-year-old young man who wants to travel the world and be an inspirational speaker, et cetera. And she looked at me and smiled at her big hair, and she said, she said, every day, young men, write down the six or seven highest priority actions that you can do that day to fulfill what is most meaningful to and most inspiring to you each day. And don't make long goals that take days to get done. It has to be an action that can be done that day. You don't want to accumulate a goal overrun where you're accumulating goals that never get done. You want actions that you can get done with certainty. It's better to have small ones that you're absolutely certain and reward yourself at the completion of them. So write down the six or seven highest priority actions. So I got index cards, three by five index cards. You can do it out of that now. And I wrote out and meditated in the morning about what I was grateful for because I had written that at night before I went to bed. And I, when I got into a state of gratitude, I found that when I'm in a state of gratitude, I'm most authentic. And I don't mean a gratitude, thank you, thank you, thank you. I mean a really deep tier of gratitude when you're really seeing the order of what's going on in your life. In that state, you don't set too big of goals that defeat you or too small goals that don't motivate you. You tend to see things that are more congruent with who you are when you're grateful. And I wrote down the six or seven things and then I made sure I prioritized it and acted on it and got them done each day. And sometimes I'd be through at three and I'd add another one. And then if I finished that one, I still had an hour, I'd add another one. But I put small incremental momentum building steps in place, not big lofty things, 
I took the lofty goals and I broke them down into little actions and I just stuck to the little actions each day that I knew if I did that, I'd get closer every day to that goal. And I kept the cards in an index box. And after about a year or so, I had quite a few of those cards. And I, then I pulled out the card and I wrote down what was those six or seven things. And I got the next card, tossed the card, got the next one. And anywhere where the same answer showed up, I put line, 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 slash, line, line, line. So anything that was duplicated on the priorities, I kept showing it. And anything that was new, I just kept listing it vertically. And then I looked at the end after I went through all the cards to look at what was the priority of the priorities. Because the ones that showed up most frequently in the 365 days was a higher priority that showed up most and down to least. And in mine, it boiled down to four things. Teach, research, write, travel. Now, when I saw that, I made a commitment to delegate everything else. And I gradually let go of everything else. Today, I only teach, research, write, and travel. I only do my core competences that I'm inspired to do, that I love to do, that produce the most. Another way of approaching this, I learned from Alec McKenzie in a book called The Time Trap. Well, he said things that made me come up with this solution I'm offering. You make a list of every single thing that you actually do in a day, and you write down everything that you do in a typical day, and look over about a three-month period to look at what you might be doing during days, and include it all, and look at, honestly, how do you spend your time? Because most people think they're productive, but they're actually filling their day with all kind of low-priority stuff without even realizing. They're majoring in minors and minoring in majors. Make a list of everything you actually do and make an exhaustive list. And don't put generalities, marketing. Put the actual action steps that you actually do moment by moment. Answer the phone, fill out this thing, quickly type this email. What Every single thing you do in a day, that's column one of six columns on a piece of paper. Column two is, how much does it produce of income per hour? That action. Now, when I did that, more than half of what I was doing didn't produce anything, which means it wasn't doing anything that served anybody that people would pay for. So I was basically doing a bunch of stuff devaluing my time. And I found out that me going out and doing presentations and engaging people into patients and then doing clinical work, my priority and delegating things lower in priority is where I actually produced the most. So by going through there and looked at what produced second, first most, second most, third most, et cetera, down to zero, I reprioritized it according to the most productive down to least productive use of my time. And boy, was that insightful, amazingly insightful, because I realized I know where I need to be focused. And guess what? It actually ended up being the same four things, teach, research, write, travel. So then what I did is I know the next column, I wrote down how much meaning does each of these have on a one to 10 scale? Because it may be productive, but if I'm not inspired to do it, I'm going to resist it. But I want to know what is it that I am inspired to do at a 10 verse 1 where I feel like I got to do. And I reprioritized that entire list according to what meaning it had. Now, I found out that those top four were the ones that were most meaningful and most productive. And I thought, wow, this is interesting. I'm hitting it from a different angle and coming to the same conclusion. The next column was, how much would it cost to delegate that? If I hired somebody that was more competent to me, that loved doing that and had skills and years of experience and could do it greater than I did, so I didn't have to ever think about it, they would just run with it. How much would it cost? Not just their salary, but their space usage, their training, their parking, and every cost, their equipment, depreciation, everything. How much would it cost me? And then I redid that by prioritizing the spreads between what it cost versus what it produced. 
But if they did that action and it produced this and it cost this, I can look at my spreads. When I got through that, I then said, how much time is it actually being done? Five minutes a day, two hours a day, five hours a day? How much time is actually being allotted to that? So I know what to hire and how long and hours and allocate. And on the final column is final prioritization with all those variables kept in mind. And then what I did is I reprioritized the entire list according to those priorities and those variables. And then I sliced it up into 10 layers and I hired people to do the bottom layer and hired somebody to do that as a job description, the next layer, the next layer. And 18 months from when I read that book and did that action, 18 months later, I had a tenfold increase in income, net income. I had five doctors and 12 staff members. I only had one assistant when I did the exercise. 18 months later, I had five doctors, 12 staff members, a 5,000 square foot office, and I was tenfold net, work, net, net income and, and going into profits and taxes. And I was doing the four things. The rest of it was delegated. If you're going to live an inspired life, you can't do it by doing low priority, desperate things. If you hear yourself saying, I got to do it, I have to do it, I, I, I'm, I must do it, I should do it, I ought to do it, I'm supposed to do it, I need to do it, it ain't you. It's an injected value of somebody that you're subordinating to thinking I should be doing that, I ought to be doing that. We don't talk to ourselves that way in our own values. We only talk to ourselves that way through outer authorities' values, which Freud called the superego, which is an injection of outer values from outer authorities. Once you clear out all those and you're not doing things you got to do and have to do, which you got to break on when you do those, and you've got people who love to do that, which is something you would like to delegate, off you go. Your energy goes up. Your gratitude goes up. Your magnetism goes up. Your filtering of the world for synchronicities goes up. Your income goes up. You take off. You scale up. So prioritizing and sticking to what's really highest in priority. That's why I say, if you don't fill your day with high priority actions and inspire you, your day is designed to fill up with low priority distractions that drive you crazy because that's the feedback from the universe to try to get you to be authentic. It's a feedback, get you back to priority. I'm really glad that you um, put the time frame in there because I was thinking about that. I was like, wow, that sounds wonderful. But, you know, everyone could do this list and then turn around and go, right, I'm just going to spontaneously turn heap of things off. I'm so it's good, to, it's good to understand that kind of 18-month time frame because it gives some context around the realistic implementation of that kind of thing, which I think a lot of people could benefit from. But do you know what I think? Do you know why I think most people won't do that? It's because I think they get stuck in their worth as in they potentially don't think that they are worthy of being able to go and do those things. Most people seem to have a self-belief that it could be, could call it imposter syndrome or some belief that, um, you know, that level of autonomy or freedom or getting other people, that they're not worthy of that. Do you agree with that? Or do you have any ideas on how people can kind of shift that part? Because I think if they can crack through that, and actually maybe understand that if they can be their most authentic self in their highest value doing their most important work, they can actually deliver so much change to the world. But there seems to be a little piece there. Any thoughts on that? Yes. I'm writing an article that I'm sending today to Jet Set Magazine on that topic, that very article. Are you authentic or are you going to live as an imposter? That's the topic. Interesting. So I'm certain about this. This is something I put a lot of energy into. If you're living by highest priority, your identity revolves around your highest value. Your core competence revolves around your highest value and your teleological purpose revolves around your highest value. That's why the Delphic Oracle said, know thyself, be thyself, love thyself. That's true. Anytime you're doing high priority things, your self-worth goes up. Your willingness to receive, 
Why? Because you're more objective, less subjectively biased, more in thrival than survival, and you're more likely to be in sustainable fair exchange, which maximizes your self-worth and ultimately your net worth. But if you're trying to do something that's low in your values because you think you should and because you're copying somebody else and you're not being prioritized, you're designed to self-depreciate. Anytime you put someone in a pedestal and compare yourself to them, you minimize yourself. When you do, you're unfulfilled. You go into the amygdala. The amygdala wants immediate gratification and it wants a pleasure without pain and it wants to consume and it goes starts overspending. It starts overeating. It goes distractions. It's your self-worth going down when you live by lower values is not a mistake. It's not a weakness. It's a normal biological mechanism to try to let you know that when you go in a direction other than authenticity, that you're going to create chaos in your life to create pain to get you back onto authenticity and back onto priority. Everything that's going on in your life is trying to get you back on priority and back onto authenticity. Your physiological symptoms, your psychological symptoms, your business symptoms, your family and relationship symptoms, your social interaction symptoms, all of them are feedback mechanisms to get you back to being back on priority. But people will automatically not feel worthy because they keep being addicted to a fantasy of who they think they should be instead of actually being true to who they really are. Yeah, I think it's it's so that last little bit, you know, I know you've kind of touched on it a couple of times, but setting the kind of wrong perspectives around what success looks like, you know, such and such has a nice car, so therefore that is a feature of success that I must desire. And it's quite funny, personally, as I've gone through this journey, you, you mentioned earlier, your actions actually dictate what your values are. And I've been paying a lot more attention to that. And as we've grown our business and we've done all these things, it's kind of like, well, I don't want to buy a fancy car. And even like when it, the, the opportunity to, for example, take money off the table as you do in business, it's like, well, I don't want to do that. Actually, my actions dictate that I choose to invest in research and development and all of these other fun things because that is actually, that level of curiosity is much more in line with my values versus materialism and, and all of these kind of things. So it's super interesting to, um, to, to think about that. You've had a fair bit of success in business as well. And so I'd like, to, I'd like to kind of explore that a little bit and how these principles have threaded through because you're able to distill down to your four key areas that you want to, that are your highest value that you're able to, to focus on. But at the same time, you have, you've done amazing stuff. You've taught hundreds of thousands of people around the world. You've, had, you've authored 40 books. You've done an amazing amount of stuff. That also has to have a business around it to be able to do that, to be able to, you know, to develop the systems to be able to get you to the places to do the stuff. And so I'm interested to kind of talk about that and how we kind of thread these ideas through together. Sure. Well, at 27 years old, I bought that book, Alec McKenzie's Time Trap. That was the beginning of my business management development because I was, I had one assistant and I really didn't, I was doing a little of everything and I was a little overwhelmed by stuff and I was feeling like low self-worth because I was doing low priority things. So I never went back. You know, I, I, I used to balance a, a checkbook. I haven't done that since I was 20, just turned 28. I hadn't done it since. I've delegated everything and I have a team around me that takes care of everything. I even have somebody that comes and changes my clock. I've got people that take care of my cleaning. I have somebody that does my cooking. I got my, the pilot. I got the, everything that I don't love doing is delegated and there's a specialist today. So I'm surrounded by specialists. And if you surround yourself with people that are inspired to do what you want to delegate, your life changes. 
And people always think, well, when you're wealthy, you can do that. No, I became wealthy because I did. That's what people don't get. People have it backwards. Well, you can afford to do it. No, I became wealthy because I got onto the thing that I was most proficient in, which was researching and, and writing things and educating people, which brought in the most income. The most income thing I was doing was standing and speaking and inspiring people. So I just stick, stuck to that. And then I took a portion of it. Most people want to meet a gratification. I took a portion of that. 50% of whatever I grossly earned in my business went into investments. And so most people don't do that. They want to go raise their lifestyle. I put it into investments and I let my money work for me. And that's what allowed me to make more money work. I make less money working today than I do in my investments. My money makes me more money than I do work. But in the process of doing it, it started out where I was making more money working and there's a little bit of coming in from the you know, the compound interest. But after a while, the compound interest grows and grows and grows and it out, and outshines your work. So I'd like to address that if I could. I was speaking in, in South Africa at a success summit and I was the opening speaker and I, Richard Branson was the closing speaker and they had a bunch of salespeople in between, one of those types of yeah. uh, summits. And um, I get up on the stage, first speaker, and I said, and I knew this was an entrepreneurial group that wanted to grow business and finance and leadership. That was the main three areas. And I said, I got up on the stage, I looked at the room, there were 5,000 something people there. And I said, how many of you would love to be financially independent where your passive income is exceeding your active income and you're working because you love to, not because you have to? Every hand went up. Some people had two hands. Some people put their legs in the air. Now, the ones that put their legs in the air are the people that are all excited about it, right? They have a fantasy about it. The people that actually were financially independent kind of put their hand up like, yeah, we've done that. I got that. But majority of people were all excited about that because they didn't have that. Then I asked them, isn't it interesting that 99 to 100% of the people in this room, 5,000 plus people put their hand up. They all want to be financially independent. Then I asked them, what's the percentage of people that actually achieve that? And I heard anywhere from 1% to 5%. I said, it's actually less than 1% of the world. Extreme poverty is one-sixth of the world. But the average person doesn't make financial independent. It's less than 1%. And I said, so isn't it interesting? Less than 1% of you mathematically, statistically are going to get there. Now, this group is an entrepreneur, so it's probably a little higher percentage. So let's just round it up to say 5%. And I asked, how many are in here are financially independent? Only seven people in that room had their hands up the way I defined it. I said, that's less than 1%. It's 0.1% almost. So I said, now, isn't it interesting? Every one of you say you want to do that, but only 1% of you are going to make it. Now, who is it going to be? And they all point out, me, 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 me. And I said, let's find out. Get a piece of paper out. And on that piece of paper, get your pen out. I'm going to give you 60 seconds to write 10 things you're going to do if I gave you $10 million. So I want you to imagine you just got a block of $10 million in cash, right? $10 million now, it's yours. And you have one minute to write the 10 things you're going to do now that you've received your $10 million. On your mark, get set, go. And they're quickly running it. And by the way, if you run out of time, you only get to nine, you only get to do those nine things. So let's write all 10 now, write as fast as you can. And they quickly run all they were going to do with that, with that $10 million. I said, time's up. Now turn it to the guy on the left or gal on the left. And then whoever you are, calculate how much of that money is still usable as an asset and how much was spent on consumables that depreciated in value. And it ranged between 20 and 80% of the money was gone 
in one minute. And I said, now, is there anybody here that stuck every one of those $10 million into an asset accumulation? And there was a handful of people in the room that did. All of them spent it on a new car, a new house, a boat, clothes, travels, etc., and buying things that were consumables that depreciated to other people they cared about. And I said, those people that immediately thought of lifestyle and consumption of depreciable items are the ones that are not going to be in that unless they have a change in values. The ones that put their money into assets immediately and let it work for them are to be the people of the millionaires. They're going to be the, that 1%. And everybody just went, okay. I said, now, now that we faced reality and you grounded, now you may be receptive to an idea and how can you increase the probability of being in those 1% marks? Because unless there's a change in values, you're not going to have a change in your behavior because your hierarchy of your values is dictating how you perceive, decide, and act in your human behavior and how you spend money. The hierarchy of your values is dictating your financial destiny because whatever's highest on your values is where your money is going to go. So I said, so let's now do an exercise on how to increase the probability of actually having a true value on doing the action steps that build fortunes. Because unless you have a higher value on doing that, you'll do the things that you have right now higher on your value, which is immediately getting those new clothes, going out and going to dinner, to having those drinks, doing those parties, spending your money, taking those trips, and you barely make enough money to do any savings or investments, your money's never working for you. You're going to be a slave all your life to money. And it does not matter how much you make, because we just saw 10 million. It's how you manage what you make. And your hierarchy of values is dictating that. So then I showed them how to shift their values how to identify their values, shift their values, and increase the probability of actually having values on taking a portion of what they earn, living a simple lifestyle, deferring gratification, and starting letting its money work for it. Mm, I, no, I 100% agree. Do you, you've mentioned investing a couple of times, and that's obviously a, a massive part of your your life. Do you have a preferred asset class? I'm, my background is, and you know, most of my world is in uh, real estate investing, so I have a propensity towards that. And it's an interesting exercise that you uh, talked about with that group because I've literally done that exercise with my uh, with with Gabby, my partner, and said, "Okay, what would we do if we got twenty million dollars?" I'm like, I'd, I'd literally just go and invest it all, one hundred percent of it in real estate, and work out the cash flow, and we could live off that. How wonderful, right? And so, but so, I, so I'm interested if you've got a got a preferred asset class, just out of curiosity. Well, I've been over the years. I've been investing forty one years now, mm. and and so I have tried different things. I've had properties. I had about $20 million in property, which is not a lot, but I've had a little bit in that. I've had, uh, but most of mine have been in companies. Mm. And the only reason why is I like buying uh, passively invested index funds with low turnover rate, which grows uh, in capital gains and low dividends. So I'm lowering my taxes each year I'm not accelerating my taxes significantly and where I'm absolutely not having to do anything. It's just passively working. The real estate market is fantastic. You can deduct things. You can reduce taxes. There's many things you can write off. You can leverage, but you still have activity or you have to hire somebody to do certain activity. And so when you calculate the activity and the cost of your time, and sometimes the distraction from primary business source, then I have to factor that in on the comparison between those two asset classes. I have done both. I have made money in both. 
I've even done arbitrage in different currencies and bought real estates in different countries to do that. But in my observation, it came out net when I factored all the factors, my time and energy, everything else, buying in high quality companies that served great numbers of people that had quality brands that had low turnover rates outperformed for me. But I also have friends that really love the real estate market. I got a guy here that is, lives on the ship and he's he's got a lot of real estate. <laughs> I mean, he is just a lot of real estate, thousands and thousands of properties. And, uh, you know, you couldn't convince him that wasn't the way to go. But he's got a whole team of 200 people managing that thing. And so he's still an active business and he depends on that team and he has to keep involved in that somehow, a little bit of activity. So I'm, I'm weighing the amount of hours and time and emotional distractions and everything else on one versus the other. And if you absolutely love it, there's some people that have propensity for the real estate, others have propensity for companies. I'm not saying one's better than the other, but it depends on what your needs are. So you need to look at what your values are and your needs. In Australia, there's some tax advantages of doing the real estate path. In America, there's some tax advantages of buying the companies. So yeah. I'm more of a Buffett fan than I am a Kiyosaki type of fan, for instance, because he's got a billion dollars worth of, of uh, debts to go with it. Mm. And that whole thing could collapse. And it's a house cards in some respects if it's not managed properly. You need to make sure you have enough liquidity and make sure you've got access because banks don't always give you money when you want it. They give it when they don't. When they have plenty of it, you, you're in you know, the upflow of the market. So- Making sure that you have it, if you're going to do it, make sure that you have the proper asset ratios and liquidity ratios and, um, you know, yeah. be honest about how much time and energy and effort you're putting into it because there's, there's a little bit more active involvement in the real estate and you're tying up capital a little bit. And you also have to think about your estate plan at the very end. When you're actually passing on, somebody's got to manage all that too after you're passing. And that's another thing about what is your intention on your on your charitable contributions or your distribution to family or whatever it is. So your estate planning comes in about which of those asset classes may be to your advantage. Mm, I love that. It's good advice. It's good advice. Yeah, there's definitely pros and cons in all kinds of uh, investments. You really got to kind of think about like what is most suited to your, both your current situation and your, and your future goals. I'm mindful of time, but I want, to ask, I want to ask one more question. I would like to know what is one contrarian belief that you hold to be true? I know we've talked about a lot in this session we've had together. What is one thing, what is one contrarian belief that you hold to be true? Our society, our mass conscious, consumer, economically driven, psychological society is very commonly stuck, as is the mass media, in the victim model, the perpetrator, innocent victim model, the predator, prey model, the false attribution bias model where I blame somebody and this person's going to save me. And it's not accountable. As Epictetus says, when you first go on your journey, you blame others, then you blame yourself, then you realize there's nothing to blame. There's a hidden order to things. And I don't promote that. I do not believe that that's the path of mastery. I believe that's the path of misery, not mastery. You know, because what you're doing is you're trying to avoid a pain and seek a pleasure all the time. And and as the Buddha says, the desire for that which is unobtainable and the desire to avoid that which is unavoidable is a source of human suffering. So I'm a contrarian on that. I, I just think that people are more capable of doing extraordinary things if they are accountable for their perceptions and learn how to bring them, their, their misperceptions back into objectivity and take command of their life and ask 
whatever's happened to them, how is it helping them fulfill what their mission is? One of the greatest questions is, how is no matter what's happened to me today, supportive or challenging, how is it helping me fulfill my mission? How is it helping me get one step closer? So that way you're grateful for your life instead of accumulating baggage that you're blaming people for. Because many, many people have unrealistic expectations on themselves and other people and the government, everything else to do it all for them. Because they're basically blaming something on the outside and looking for some solution on the outside. They're blaming a devil and looking for a savior, you might say. Blaming a villain and looking for a hero. The hero and villain is you. And the contrarian is that, that you are here to be accountable and responsible for perceptions, decisions, and actions. Those are the three things you have control over. That's all. And I, I think that what we do is we keep giving our powers away instead of it taking our power in and being accountable and living by priority. When we live by our highest priority, we're more objective, more balanced, and less blaming and giving credit. We're more grateful and we're more centered. So I, I'm, the, I'm contrary to what the majority of people in the world live their life by in that respect. I love that. I wholeheartedly agree. Is there anything, anything final you would like to leave with people before we wrap it up? Yeah, the magnificence of who you truly are when you're authentic is far greater than any fantasies you impose on yourself by comparison. So instead of comparing yourself to others and putting people on pedestals and pits and then minimizing or exaggerating you, which is inauthentic, compare your daily actions to your own highest value and see how you're doing relative to the truth about what you're committed to, what your life is really demonstrating. it, And see a drone over you and watch yourself and look at what you really are up to instead of the fantasies you may have taken in. And don't, don't try to be somebody you're not. Einstein said, if you're a cat trying to swim like a fish, you're going to beat yourself up. A fish trying to climb a tree like a cat, you're going to beat yourself up. But if you know you're a cat, climb the tree. And so be truthful about who you are and what you're committed to and where your core competencies are and stick to your core competencies and surround yourself with other people that have core competencies so you can help the economy by engaging people doing what they love and exemplifying that for other people, which catalyzes a culture to grow. And give yourself permission to shine, not shrink, radiate, not gravitate, and be authentic, not an imposter. Dr. D. Martini, let's leave it there. It's been wonderful to spend some time with you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for the great interview.